greetings, or I bring greetings from Ben and Morgan and Ira. They said to tell you, hey, and they love you and they miss you. He's doing a really good job down there. Things are going well. Um, Ira's an interesting part of the world, I will say that. So, uh, but anyways, they said to tell you guys, hey, I was blessed to get to go down there and uh, uh, spend some time with them, uh, but I'm glad to be home. Uh, it's, it's weird. I told Ben I'm, I'm not a revival preacher because when you start preaching, because I wasn't going to prepare five messages for him. I already had five in the tank, so I just took them with me. But it's funny how you, you get down there and you realize so much of what you're preaching week in and week out is for your people, not somebody else, right? And so it's weird when I'm looking out there and I'm seeing you guys and seeing other people. And so um, anyways, uh, but we had a good week. So um, 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 14. We're going to read the first 19 verses this morning. Um, this should be fun. Hello. Just started singing to me, Jay. Speaking, speaking in tongues. All right, chapter 14. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation of knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you that it has something to say to us even today. I have no doubt, Father, that there are many in this room who have very strong feelings about this text one way or the other. Uh, I pray that we set our feelings aside uh, and we listen to what the word says. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how we feel. It's about what your word says and what it teaches us. I pray today that, that we would see that what's important more than anything else is word-centeredness. It's proclaiming you and you crucified week in and week out from the pages of Scripture 
in lifting Jesus high, not the person. And I pray that we make much of him today in this text. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to say thanks to Joe last week for, for filling in. He did a great job. I thought he handled 1 Corinthians 13 really well. I thought he handled that text really well. Uh, it's, it's a good text for a guy that's so fluffy and cozy and warm um, to get up here and preach on, on love, right? That's, that, that was a good thing for him. Uh, he did a really good job. And, and ultimately, what, what Joe told us last week is, is, if you remember, chapter 13 is not necessarily for a marriage. It's not necessarily for the individual. And even though we have it on barnwood, as Joe said, and it's etched in our home somewhere, really, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about the church. And it's about the love that we're to have for one another in this room and that everything we do in our service and our gathering should be directed in love for one another. And then in chapter 14, he kind of going to go back to, to what he was talking about in chapter 12. Right? If you remember in chapter 12, the problem they're having in the church now is that they're elevating those with obvious spiritual gifts, more than likely the gift of tongues, over other people. And so the people with tongues are walking around being like, oh, look at me, I can speak in tongues, I'm so awesome. And everybody else was feeling inferior because they thought, well, I don't have the gift of tongues, I must not be blessed by the Holy Spirit, and so I must be less than. And what Paul's saying is that, no, in the body of Christ, we all have gifts. And those giftings, when brought together, make up a beautiful unity. That there's a diversity in this room that, because of Jesus, makes us a unified whole. And therefore, in chapter 13, all that we do is done out of love for one another. And so here in chapter 14, we, we come to probably the most controversial of the spiritual gifts. And I can prove it. Because there's not a one of you that would get angry about the gift of hospitality, right? No such thing as the gift of hospitality, Byron. You're not going to get mad about that. You're not going to get mad about the gift of generosity. You're not going to get mad about the gift of administration. But boy, we bring up tongues and it gets interesting really, really quickly, doesn't it? People get mad and people leave churches. Specifically, Baptist churches, I've seen this happen a million times. They'll get mad and they'll say something like, well, you're just too Baptist, right? Or, oh, they're not feeding me. That's my favorite one right there is that, oh, they're just preaching the Bible and the gospel. They're not giving me the really deep stuff. So I need to go somewhere over here and go chase it. Uh, I had a lady come up here not too long ago to get some curriculum from the church. And she decided to tell me all about this new study. But then she had to throw in there that, well, it's probably not Baptist enough for you because it's pretty heavy on the Holy Spirit. It's like, ooh, you know, she's so mystical. I wish I could be that way, right? So what I want to say before we get starting is leaving a church because they don't believe in the gift of speaking in tongues is a really bad reason to leave a church. Okay, this is a second tier issue, and honestly, it's probably a third or fourth tier issue. It should be way down the list of things that we argue and we fight about. Um, this is an issue at the end of the day that we can discuss. Uh, it's an issue that we can have civil conversation over, but it's ultimately not an issue that we split over. Okay, uh, The gospel and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place for sins, absorbing the wrath of God, rising again so that we could be with him forever and ever and ever, that's the message that we split over, right? If at any point somebody says, well, that's wrong, then we can have a conversation. This stuff right here, Second and third tier, okay? So let me lay my cards on the table. I believe that the miraculous sign gifts that we see in the New Testament no longer exist, okay? I believe that they were given at that point in history 
to the apostles. And the reason that God gave them to the apostles was to communicate authoritatively that what they had to say was the real and the true gospel. It was given to them so that people would go, hey, these men have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ, that they have been given to establish and start the church, right? And so after the holy canon of Scripture was complete, and we had a full New and Old Testament, and that became the possession of the whole church, then the sign gifts ceased, okay? And the reason is, is the Bible's very clear, is that we have a more sure word now in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. So we don't need any more words from the Lord today. We have his complete and sufficient truth in our hands that we can go to at any time we want, okay? All right, and let me just put it out like this, okay? So some of you are going, well, what about healing? He still heals, okay? I believe God heals, absolutely, yes and amen. I do not believe people possess the gift of healing. If that's the truth, then you give me the two faith healers that prayed over my daughter. Why isn't she walking? Right? I, I talked to, to, to Bill, and I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. He went to a faith healer to heal his deaf ear one time. And Bill, Bill said all they did was squeeze his neck really hard, and Bill said, you can quit squeezing it anytime you want, okay? <laughs> I, I believe God heals. I do not believe people possess that gift. I believe that he does that when he chooses and if he chooses. And most times... I think the scriptures are clear as well, is that God is more glorified in suffering and keeping our eyes on Jesus and following Jesus in the midst of hurt and pain than he is by somebody being healed. Amen? That's a better testimony to me than somebody that says, this hurts, it's not getting any better, but I still love Jesus, and no matter what Jesus brings, he's still better than everything else, okay? That's where I'm going to land on this, okay? And so I think today, listen, that if you'll stick with me, I think I can show you from God's word that the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy was used for a very clear purpose at this time in church history, that it was contextual for what Paul is talking about, and that the gift of tongues that we hear today in so many charismatic churches is far different than what it was in Paul's day and age, okay? So the history of tongues starts in the Garden of Eden. God made the world. And before sin entered in, into it, Adam and Eve spoke in one language in the service of God. Right After the fall, people spoke in one language. But then you get to Genesis 6, and what happened? They used that one language to rebel against God. In fact, Genesis 6 would say that there was corruption and it increased on the face of the earth to the point that God had to choose a family and he had to wipe out the earth to get rid of the corruption. After Genesis 6, we still have one language. But then Genesis 11:1 1 happens, and we read that now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And so what did these group of people do? They banded together, and they said, hey, I tell you what, we're awesome, we're great, let's show God how awesome we are, and with our common language, we'll build a tower so high that it goes into heaven. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted God to see how awesome and how wonderful they were. And I love the language in Genesis 11 because it says God literally has to step down out of heaven to come down and see their tower. Like it's sarcasm saying like their little tower was so cute that God couldn't see it in heaven. He had to come down to it, right? And so after that, God says, we can fix this problem. And at the end of Genesis chapter 11, what's he do? He strikes them and he confuses their language and they scatter all over the world. And so now what do we have? Many different languages. 
If you go to the very end of your Bible, we'll read in Revelation 7 that in the end, when Jesus has come back and established his kingdom, we will all gather around one throne and with one voice, we will praise God Almighty. And in the beginning of the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we get a small glimpse of this very thing in Revelation on the day of Pentecost. Read with me, if you will. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Note that, note that right there, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Fire... Ugh, I tried to say that one earlier today and I can't, okay? We're going to skip it. And Pamphylia... Egypt, in the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So this was a remarkable sign that the gospel was about to go forth into all the world. What it was saying is that this good news message is not just for the Jewish people, it's for everyone. And so Peter stands up, not knowing what's coming out of his mouth as far as, I don't know how this is working, but he begins to preach the most unseeker-friendly sermon in all of history, basically saying, yeah, Jesus, yeah, we killed him. Y'all did that, right? Your sin nailed him to the cross. You're the reason he died, right? But guess what? God had a plan, and in doing that, he's going to save many from all nations. That's pretty much the gist of what Peter tells them. And all these people from all these different countries were hearing him in their own native tongue. You notice that was repeated over and over again. We were hearing them in our own tongue, in our own language. It was a remarkable sign for that time. And so at this time in, in the New Testament, especially right here where, where Paul's writing, tongues was speaking in a known language that you didn't know, but that others did so that they could hear the gospel. It was speaking in a known language with someone who had the gift of interpretation there to tell others what you just said. But it's important to note that it was a known language. It was a code. It was a language that people knew. Now, if you'll fast forward to 1900 and you get the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement led by a guy named Charles Parham at the College of Bethel. Funny how that name keeps coming up. He claimed on New Year's Eve to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that left him and others speaking in miraculous tongues and writing in other languages that they had no idea how they were doing these things. 
And so Charles Parham decides this is, this is a gift that God has visited his people again. This is a new revival movement. Here we go. We no longer need language training anymore. That God has given us the gift of the Spirit. And so what we're going to do is take all these people at the College of Bethel, right? And we're going to send them out all over the known world. And they're going to go share the gospel everywhere they go. No language training needed. And so he loads all these people up and he sends them all over the world. And it ends up being probably one of the biggest failures of the charismatic Pentecostal movement that has ever happened. Right? S.E. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India expecting to preach to natives in those countries in their own language and found out by their own admission that they were unable to do so. There's stories of these people getting off planes going, and everybody looking at them going, no sabe, man, I don't even know what you're saying, dude. And this happened all over the world, right? So they're filled with the Spirit, but yet nobody knows what they're saying. Okay, but they were undeterred. So what they did was instead of saying that this was a known language that God gave them, they said, well, let's just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There's a workaround for this, right? This is angelic language. This is heavenly language. And so what we're speaking is only God knows what it is, right? Which gets the modern sounds that we hear today. If you've ever been in a church, right? I grew up there and it's just, you know, and they're saying all these really weird things. Folks, they're speaking gibberish. This has been studied by so many different people throughout history. William Samarian, a linguistics professor from the University of Toronto, devoted like 30 years of his life studying speaking in tongues. And for many years, like he would go and listen to people, record it, take it back. And this is what he had to say. He says, it always turns out to be the exact same thing. Strings of syllables, made up sounds taken from among all those that the speaker knows, put together more or less haphazardly, but which nevertheless emerge as a word-like and sentence-like units because of realistic, language-like rhythm and melody. So, so basically, and if you know the gist of how this works, again, recovering charismatic, you come down to the altar, you've got a lot of music going, usually some big U2-like swells, right, going on, the lights are low, smoke, you got people laying hands on you, and they're going to encourage you to empty your mind, empty your mind, empty your mind, which was the Bible say, to be filled, right, to fill your mind, it never says to empty your mind, and then it says speak that prayer language, just speak that prayer language, and they keep telling you to do it over and over and over and over, and usually, if you do that long enough, stuff will start coming out, right? And usually it's stuff that you've heard somebody else repeat, and it's a bunch of syllables and consonants put together in a rhythm-like pattern. That's all it is. Most scholars say that it would be better to call these things ecstatic utterances, which if you look at so many pagan religions, especially the pagan religions, the mystery religions that were going on during the Corinthian period of time, this was a common practice in those pagan religions. So what I believe is, is that what Paul's talking about is contextual for this unique time in the history of the church. And despite what some of our charismatic brothers and sisters say, the gifts of prophecy and tongues have ceased to function in the church today. And so I think what Paul's going to do over the next two weeks is show that our worship services should be characterized by a certain order. Not disorder, not chaos, not running around with prayer flags and waiting for gold dust to fall from the ceilings, but order. 
that public worship should be used for building up and encouraging Christians first and foremost. And then next week he'll show that it's used for evangelism for the non-Christians in the room. So look with me, if you will, in chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So first and foremost, Sunday worship is for believers, with non-believers in mind. But when we gather in here on Sunday mornings, we are primarily gathering for the brothers and sisters. We're, we're gathering to hear God's word taught and preached. We're gathering to sing. So that's why Paul starts with Christians first right here in verse 14. So he says to pursue love, right? He's tying it back into chapter 13, that above all, pursue love. And then he says, desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Now, let's explain that. Because in Paul's day and age, they didn't have a completed scripture yet. So every now and then a person would receive a word from the Lord that was used to edify or build up the congregation. This is exactly what I do every week or what Joe does every week is we try to preach the Bible, convict sin, point you back to Jesus and build up the congregation. So they would receive a word from God. They would tell the church, this is what God says. And hear me, they would have an apostle in the church who had authority from God himself who would hear that word and go, yes and amen or Whoa, brother, that's a little off. Okay, sit back down. We're not saying that today. That's what prophecy was. And so what Paul's saying is, hey, I would rather you prophesy than speak in tongues. Because at least with the prophecy, people can understand what you're saying. At least with the prophecy, you're building up the congregation. When you're speaking in tongues and there's no one around to interpret it, nobody knows what you're saying. You're just mumbling gibberish. Even the speaker, even you have no idea what you're saying. It's not working. So in verse 3, he says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their encouragement and for the building up of the church. So what Paul's doing is he's showing us the consequences of abusing tongues. That if you don't have an interpreter, all you're doing is you're building yourself up. You're puffing yourself up. You're up there strutting around going, look what I can do. Look at my gift. Everybody look at me. I'm drawing attention to myself. Which if you go back to chapter 12, what was the point of chapter 12? is that we're all in this together, but there's a unity. There's not one person that gets to be elevated over another person in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, what does Paul say? He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Right? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of the neighbor. So if you're just running around speaking in gibberish, you're not building anyone up. You're not in it for the good of your neighbor. So we're not to build ourselves up. We're not to seek to make ourselves look good. And all that we do, we're out for the good of one another in here on Sunday mornings, okay? All right, verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets it so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So, so follow Paul's argument. He goes, sure, man, it would be great. It would be awesome if you all spoke in tongues. That would be amazing if God did that. 
but tongues are unintelligible without an interpreter. So when they are interpreted, the purpose was is that they would function like prophecy, that they would build up, that they would edify, that they would lift up the body of believers. They bring revelation from God for the good of the whole church. But Paul says what the church really needs, if it's going to benefit and grow and be built up, isn't some eerie, mystical-like experience. What they need is a word of revelation. What they need is God's word. They need clear biblical truth explained and applied with clarity and understanding and the power of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of those who hear. Paul says that's what's more important than anything else. It's God's word. And then he uses two uh, illustrations in verses 7 and 8. He uses the, the example of instruments. He says, so take instruments like a flute or a harp. If they don't give indistinct notes, how's anybody going to know what they're playing? Like, like if you have an orchestra and one instrument is off, the other instruments are off, it doesn't sound right. The songs don't sound right. In an orchestra, the flute isn't supposed to rebel and take the horns with him. right? That, that's not how it's supposed to work. Instead of the audience being built up, they're confused. They're like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, this is interesting. Like, I, it, it's, I, don't, I don't get it, right? And then others in the audience might go, hey, I kind of like it. It's different. They're divided. They're not, they're not in one. In verse 8, he says, hey, look at the bugle in the army. It gives a distinct sound to let people be ready for battle. I went to the U.S. Army website, and I found that there are 25 distinct bugle calls possible on any given weekday. 25. Each of them communicating different orders to the troops that they know. Right? That's a lot of bugler, bugle calls. But if the bugler decides he's going to play East Harlem Shakedown in E-flat, nobody's going to know what's going on. Right? They might go, hey, I like it. It's jazzy, but I don't know what they want me to do right now. Am I supposed to go to the mess hall? I'm supposed to fight? I don't know what's going on. Right? So Paul's saying, like, listen, whenever you're doing that, it's just confusing. Nobody knows what's happening. Right? Verse 9. He says, so with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Pretty plain and simple. Easy to understand, right? If you're speaking unintelligible words, ecstatic utterances for our modern-day people, it's a waste of breath. In verse 10, he says, There's many languages in the world, and in the New Testament, this gift existed. People would stand up, they would speak in languages they didn't know, so that others would be able to hear and understand the gospel in their language. Acts 2 was clear on that. But Paul says, If I don't know the meaning of the language... Like if I just get up and I start speaking Korean, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. And that word foreigner is actually the word barbarian. In, in, in Greek, it's, it's an onomatopoeia, right? So it's barbar. So, so Paul's kind of making a joke there. Like if we get up and we're just going bar, 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 right? Like, like we're, we're, nobody knows what we're saying to one another. It's kind of funny. So what Paul means is that if we continue this chaotic speech with no interpreter in the church, it's going to disintegrate. It's going to divide. It's going to fall apart. Nobody's going to be built up or edified. They're going to be alienated from one another. You're going to create barriers, right? You're going to say, well, here's the spiritual people that have been gifted with the gift of the Spirit, and then here's everybody else, right? Sure hope you get that gift eventually, Carol, right? That's what we're going to do. 
It's not going to bring about the unity in the body that I've been talking about, is what Paul says. He says, we're just going to be like foreigners to one another that can't understand each other's language. And so in verse 12, Paul's really, really sarcastic. He goes, so since you're so eager for a manifestation of spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So brothers and sisters, listen to me. Everything we do in here on Sunday morning is so that we can build one another up. That's the point. So we sing. And we don't just sing for your own benefit. Yes, that's good. But you sing for your brothers and sisters that are next to you. Right? Remember the early church didn't dim the lights and darken the room so that we couldn't see each other. They had big bright stained glass like this for a reason. Why? So that we could see our brothers and sisters standing side by side with them and singing. Talk to the band. There's nothing more encouraging than seeing people who everything is going wrong in their lives, who have no reason to stand and sing on Sunday morning, stand up and with all of their hearts sing to Jesus for how good he is. Right? My wife is not an emotional person. Okay? And I know some days you're like, well, she cries all the time. Well, yeah, but, but most of the time she does it. I'm the crier. Okay? Watching This Is Us the other night. She's ugly crying on the couch. It makes me up. Right? She's not. And most of the time she'll tell you she gets emotional watching you sing or hearing you sing. It's here to build one another up. Some of you look like you got gas half the time. <laughs> sing. There's nothing more encouraging than seeing a person who's had a long week and it would just be easy to mail it in, show up and sit with their Bibles open and hear the Word of God taught. There's nothing more encouraging than seeing a person that you hadn't seen all week, seeing a brother or sister on the Lord's Day and talking with them and praying with them and fellowshipping with them. I loved being with Ben last week, but I miss being here. I miss seeing you. I saw a lot of nice faces. I didn't see these faces that I love. That's encouraging. So, so, so just so we're clear, all right, building up the church is what we're after. But hear me on this. Building up the church is not the same as having all your needs and preferences met. We should never hold our church hostage to our personal preferences by saying, I'm not being edified unless you change this or if you do it this way, right? That's not edification. That's just you being selfish. See, the key to being built up and edifies understanding the truth. That's what Paul's saying. So we're to speak the truth to one another in love. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not the emptying of our minds, which is where Paul goes next. Look what he says in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? If you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So verses 13 through the first part of 15 is often used by some to say that, that since you don't have an interpreter, right? So here's where the logic goes. Well, then it's a private prayer language, right? You speak that private prayer language or you do it privately. 
But what Paul just said is, is if I pray in tongues and I don't know what I'm saying, then my mind is unfruitful and that's not a good thing. In other words, he's saying, believer, brother and sister, engage your brain. Christianity is not a dumb religion. It is one that requires you to use your mind. And so Paul says, engage your brain. He isn't condoning a private prayer language. He's warning against a private prayer language, right? That's where he goes right there at the end of verse 15. He says, um, I, will, uh, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also, right? Is that when I pray, I pray with the spirit, but then I pray with my mind. I pray intelligibly. I pray with understanding is what he's saying. I'll sing praises with my spirit, but I sing praises with my mind also. That when I'm singing words to Jesus, I know what those words mean. Those words are theologically accurate. Those words communicate a biblical truth about who Jesus is, right? We do a lot of this when we sing in here is that we make sure the words we sing communicate songs about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You sang three today, and the gospel was presented in all three of them. Paul says we don't just throw ourselves, uh, like throw our minds out the door, which is what we tend to do with music, isn't it? Well, they play it on the radio. It's so wonderful. Doesn't mean it's right. I I told our membership class today, I know everybody loves reckless love. We won't sing it. God's love is not reckless, folks. Read the Bible. It's not out of control. God's love is one that from the beginning of time was purposeful and that he was in control of it the whole time. He is not some out of control God. Jesus wasn't plan B. He was plan A. God knew what he was doing. Okay? So we engage our brains. That's what he's saying. Verse 16 means don't use the gift of tongues unless there's an interpreter, period. Other people need to know what you're saying and be able to say amen. People can't say amen to what you're saying if they don't know what you're saying and you don't know what you're saying. It's just meaningless noise. Verse 17, Paul says, you may think you're saying thanks, but the other person's just like, you know, I don't know. I think he said he had to go to the bathroom. I I don't know what he's saying. I don't get it. In verse 18, I love it because Paul goes, man, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. In other words, Paul said, I do speak in tongues, but I do it right. You guys aren't doing it right, is what Paul says. And then he rounds it out by saying this, I would rather you speak five intelligible words with your mind that people can understand than you to just get up there and just speak all these crazy utterances that nobody gets. Paul's saying, I would rather you build the church up. And so brothers and sisters, hear me on this. And this is why I think this, this text is important. It's because we live in a day and age that values the mysterious and the dramatic. And we live in a day and age where people, especially in churches, want intense emotional experiences. Like they want to come in and they want to cry and they want to feel something all the time. There are whole churches out there that thrive on this sort of thing. I I listened to a podcast the other day about a little girl who, who got swept up into one of these churches in California. And the church that she got caught up in is based on intense and emotional. It centers on music. In fact, their band was just nominated for 14 Grammy Awards or Double Awards uh, because their music is so amazing. But she talked about how the pastor would get up and one of his favorite quotes is, God is bigger than the Bible. Or he would say, we need to go off the map here just a little bit. What he means is is that God wants to do things and show you things that aren't mentioned in the Bible. Folks, that's that's a frightening thing to say. 
And the fact that, that people are eating this up is scary. He, he had a quote that hit Twitter this week, and, and this is what he says. He's speaking of music. As he says, music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. Stop right there. What did Paul just say? We worship with our heart, but also with our mind. So we don't bypass the intellectual barriers. And then he says, and when the anointing of God is on song, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. What? Paul just said, I would rather you speak five intelligible words to build up the congregation than to speak nonsense and have people believe it. I told you as a young charismatic, I remember getting swept up in these experiences and being told to disengage my mind, to empty my mind. And speaking in tongues was a way to get your mind out of the way. But there is no such a promise in the scriptures. So brothers and sisters, hear me. There's such an immediate, uh, there's such an appeal to promise, to, to such direct and immediate experience that can lead people astray so easily in our day and age. We get so wrapped up in how we feel sometimes that we forget that the Bible never tells us to lean on what we feel, but what we know. Right? Because if you want to know how I feel, you're going to be here a while. Right? There's a lot of days I don't feel like coming to church and preaching. There's a lot of days I don't feel like leaving my house. There's a lot of days I don't feel like going to a football game and listening to all you coaches in the stands. Right? That was a good one. You're welcome. I don't feel like it. But you know what? What I know is that God has promised that through the preaching of his word, he will draw men to himself. I know that by gathering together and not neglecting to do that, that's a promise in scripture that I'm built up, that I'm edified. Like when we come to church, we don't go, hey, this is how I feel. No, what do you know? And, and the more you remind yourself of what you know, that God is for me, not against me, that God loves me, that God sent Jesus to die for me, that there's nothing that can separate me from God, then that does something to me, and then I begin to feel towards God. But it starts with what I know, not what I feel. The scriptures never tell you to put your brain into a box and to shut your intellect away. If you really want to worship, if you really want to know God and meet with God, then it happens, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. Jay read this this morning to begin the service. He says, for this reason... Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and hear me in this, in the knowledge of Him. Right, And because of the knowledge of Him, verse 18, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to have wisdom that says Jesus stepped down out of heaven. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve. He went to a cross and bore God's wrath for me. And then he rose again to his reigning and ruling. And one day he's coming back for me. Paul says, that's what I want you to know. 
And I want you to remember that on hard days and on good days. I want you to drive that down deep into your heart. Paul says that's how you have real communion with God. It's only when the Spirit opens our eyes and gives us understanding. And how do you have that communion? Through the Word enlightening our minds. Word-centeredness is the key to knowing God. Building one another up in the body of Christ by means of intelligible, biblical truth. And that's what we need more than ever, brothers and sisters. So remember, in Paul's day and age, tongues existed. But Paul says what is more important is prophecy. I've already told you, prophecy, like what happened in Paul's day and age, doesn't exist anymore. But if you look at that word prophesy in this text in the Greek, one of the definitions that it, it, it gives over and over and over is to foretell. Is to foretell. So, so every week, if you're a Christian, you should desire to enter into this room and to hear the preacher, no matter who it is, foretell the word of God. God's word still operates with the same kind of force that Paul's talking about right here. And maybe you can, you can relate. Maybe you came to church one day. Maybe it was today. Maybe you came to church years and years ago. And, and maybe you came because you were bored. Maybe you came because your wife made you. Maybe you came because your parents drug you there. Maybe you just showed up and you didn't know why you were there. You sit down. You look at the order of worship and you read the passage and you go, eh, eh, ain't nothing in there that's going to say anything to me. And you just kind of checked out and started doodling like a kid, right? But then all of a sudden something happens to you. You ever been there? And as you hear the Bible explained, all of a sudden you go, wait, what was that? And something begins to stir in your heart. And as you hear the preacher talk about how we deceive ourselves and how we lie to ourselves about our sin, about how we need a Savior, suddenly you're like, holy cow, man, does this guy know me? Oh my gosh, what's going on? Has he been looking at my emails? How does this guy know like, everything that, that's going on in my life? And suddenly you realize, holy cow, I'm, I'm guilty in God's sight. And, and there's absolutely nothing I can do to change it. And all of a sudden you're convicted profoundly of sin and your need for a Savior. And you don't know what you're going to do. And you're sitting there going, oh no, what, what am I supposed to do? But then, hopefully, if he was a good preacher, he points you to Jesus. He tells you about the good news about a cross where Jesus bore the wrath and curse of God for every believing sinner so that there's hope for you. That there's freedom from sin in Jesus Christ. That he's come to set you free. And suddenly, you're not there going, well, I need a really good song to work up my, my emotions for Jesus. All of a sudden, because of the gospel being taught, all of a sudden, you're crying out to Christ for cleansing and pardon. And you're clinging to the cross because, you know, I got nothing outside of that. And suddenly, you're swept up into the fellowship of God's people with the Lord Jesus as your only Savior. Listen, brothers and sisters, that's the experience that we need. We need to open the Scriptures and to see Christ and to see His Gospel, and we need to do it daily. We need to do it every week as we gather in this room. That's what we need. So my prayer for us, and especially uh, over the next couple weeks as we look at this some more, is that we would be a people of the Word. That we would be a people who would not seek experiences but that we would seek God as he's revealed himself in his word through his son, Jesus Christ. That we would be a people that would show up every week to hear God's word taught and explained. And here it is. As God's word's taught and explained, Jesus is lifted high. And when Jesus is lifted high, then all men will be drawn to him. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for what it shows us and teaches us. I thank you, Father, that according to what we've looked at today, is that, Father, we don't need some strong emotional experience. What we need is the gospel. And as your word is opened and taught, and as the gospel is proclaimed, and as we um, hear it, and as that truth drives down deep into our hearts, it then produces worship of you. So, Father, that means that I don't have to have a fog machine. I don't have to have lasers. I don't have to have the edge on guitar to make us feel anything, Father. That, Father, the gospel is what stirs my heart to worship you. So I pray today that the brothers and sisters in this room, that no matter what they've come in here with, whether it's been a great week or a bad week, that as we get ready to stand and sing to you, that, Father, we would stand and sing with all that we've got because of what you've done for us in Jesus. Father, I know that everything could be going wrong in our life, but we still have Jesus. And because of that, we have more reason to sing than anybody else. I pray if there's anyone in here today that doesn't know you, I pray that as the gospel went out today, that, Father, hearts were changed, that lives were changed, and that you saved in this room. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.